Listen, if you don't have a copy of the story in your household, there's a big stack of them back there. Uh, we want you to take one of those. Uh, we're going to be in that thing for a while. Let me just tell you what it is, okay? Uh, the story, it's the Bible. Uh, if you pull out your NIV and you lay it next to this one, you'll notice it says the same thing. Uh, but they've done a couple of key things. One, uh, the Bible is not necessarily arranged chronologically. Uh, you'll have books that are like history books, so they take place over the course of a thousand years, and then some of them are like kind of one-offs. They just record one event. Uh, what they did there is, is uh, rearrange all the events so they're chronological in order. Uh, they've also removed some redundancies, like for example, uh, the, the crucifixion of Christ appears in four Gospels, all four of them. Uh, in the story, you'll only read one of the accounts. Um, so they kind of laid it out so that it, it really just reveals the overarching narrative of the Bible. And it's a lot easier to read, uh, but that's really our goal is to, uh, to kind of get after the overarching narrative. So please grab one of those. That's our gift to you. Uh, you don't necessarily have to have it right now. Everything will be on the screen. Uh, but please take one of those. The way it'll work as we go throughout is each, uh, there's 31 chapters. It's broken up uh, the whole narrative into 31 parts. So we'll talk about something in one of those parts each week on Sunday, and then through the week you can read through uh, the whole thing. Uh, generally, it's in the neighborhood of about 10 to maybe as many as 20 pages max uh, each week. So, uh, so it's going to be really awesome. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Congratulations to all of you who don't like to camp because you agree with me. You're not camping this weekend. Uh, why would I want to sleep in the dirt when I have a perfectly good bed? Like I always say, uh, but I, uh, I was unfortunate that week one had to be this week, uh, but in order for the resurrection to line up on Easter Sunday, yes, we sometimes think that far ahead, uh, we had to start this week, unless we wanted to cancel Christmas altogether. So, uh, so that's why we're starting today, and it's going to be awesome. So if you have your device with you, if you've got your Bible on it, or if you have a Bible with you, or if you brought your copy of the story, uh, we'll be on page one today, Genesis 1-1. One, one. I've always thought how terrifying it would be to walk into a church service and have the pastors get up and say, turn in your Bible to page 1, and just be like, oh my gosh, how long is this going to go? Uh, it won't be that bad, I promise. The story. Every story has some critical components to it. Every good story. Uh, every good story has some basic combination of good and bad. A good guy and a bad guy. A good side and a bad side. Uh, a protagonist and an antagonist and a dilemma in between them. That's the nuts and bolts of every good story. Tolkien, uh, who wrote The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, many of you are familiar with those, um, you know, he wrote all these like fantastic, crazy stories. And you think, man, this person must have been a madman. But what he said he actually wrote about was the story of good versus evil. He said, everyone loves the story of good versus evil because it's our story. It's the narrative of humanity as told in the Bible. He said, no matter what form you put it in, everyone loves it. Uh, it's the story of human existence. Now, chances are all of us have a Bible. Uh, some of us have many of them, including the ones that we left in our car out in the parking lot today. Uh, but whether you've barely touched a Bible or you're very well familiar with it, uh, we probably all agree that putting all of the pieces of the Bible together in just the right order so that it all makes sense uh, is kind of difficult. I mean, it happened over a long period of time, and the names are funny, and some of them sound the same, some of them are the same. Uh, you know, what's with Elijah and Elisha, which one came first? And it, it can be confusing. Uh, chronology in the Bible is, is kind of difficult if you just pick it up. The story is going to help us cure that. Now, here's a couple of outcomes that I think will happen by the time we get all the way to the end. I think if you follow along all the way to the end, you'll realize that the Bible is, is actually not a boring religious book. 
It's actually a very compelling, epic story. Uh, as we go through this, you'll find that some of the things, like say the Proverbs, for example, the Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It, it's not a historical narrative. Uh, it's actually, there's not many of the Proverbs recorded in the story, only the things that are pertinent to the narrative. Uh, what you'll see in that manner is that it's a really compelling story. The other thing I think we'll realize is that uh, we'll all get a better understanding of the fact that just having the Bible really is a blessing. Uh, it really is a joy just to have access to it in light of God's big story and how we're all a part of it. So we're going to do this. Uh, there is, my, my parents have some friends who live out in uh, the South Valley. Now, if all you know about Spokane Valley is what you see driving down Sprague, uh, you haven't seen the good part, obviously. Uh, there are actually nice parts. Uh, they live in the South Valley, which is a very, really one of the nicer parts of the valley, one of the nicer parts of Spokane, really. Uh, nice neighborhood. It's pretty well established. Uh, all the homes have really nice yards, uh, big trees in the neighborhood, except for years they had a neighbor, the neighbor, who was a hoarder. And like, you couldn't really see too much of their house because the, the brush was all grown up so much, thankfully. Because the part you could see, you could see that there was like junk stacked up all the way in front of the windows, you know? And uh, there was three or four cars always in the driveway just packed full of stuff. Uh, you ever see a house like that? Uh, hopefully there's not one like close to your house. Um, but you know, in your mind's eye, you know, like the neighborhood hoarder, the person, the guy at the end of the block. Uh, I feel like most neighborhoods have one or at least maybe you drive by. One And, uh, you know, you judge them. You're, you think you're better than them. It's all good. I do too. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. You don't do that. Uh, well, there was a guy who was a hoarder named Walter Zamasco. He died in 2012. And, uh, and he, was, he was that guy in his neighborhood. Everyone just was like, oh my gosh, clean up your yard, right? Uh, if you're the bad yard guy, I'm so sorry right now. Uh, Walter Zamasco died in 2012 with $200 to his name. Um, he had a ton of stuff piled up, but he didn't have any money. And uh, so after he passed away, somebody had to go in and clean up his house. And so when the cleanup crew went in to clean up Walter Zamasco's house, they struck gold, literally. They found out that he was a rare coin collector. A uh, uh, good portion of his coins actually were from the 19th century, dating back as far as like pre-Civil War, 1840s, kind of in that range. And... Uh, Aside from their value as collectibles, because of the rarity of them, of course, they were worth an extreme amount of money, uh, but, but just the pure volume of gold in the coins, if you melted it down, was worth over $7 million. Uh, I think most of us could agree that if we had $7 million laying around, we'd probably spend some of it, right? We wouldn't just like pile it up uh, in like a literal pile the way Walter Zamasco did, uh, but he had been sitting on a treasure, he had literally been sitting on a treasure all that time. And in many ways, I think the Bible is kind of the same way for a lot of us. I think as we're, as we're talking about what God is up to, we're going to realize that we're actually sitting on a gold mine, that the Bible is not just an archaic text, even though it extends all the way back to the beginning. And the Bible is not just something we study to refine our character, even though it will refine your character. And the Bible is not just a code of conduct for us to live by, even though it does tell us how to live our best possible life. The Bible will change you because of one very specific reason, because it is the Word of God.
The Bible will change you for that reason, because it is the Word of God. You can't grow as a Christian, you can't grow in your faith without understanding God's Word. So I just want to share with you quickly uh, a pastoral prayer that the Apostle Paul prays uh, over a church in Thessalonica. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13, this is what he wrote to them. He said, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, get this now, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. You accepted it not as a human word, but you accepted it for what it actually is, God's words, which is indeed at work in you who believe. The Bible is actually God's words, and it can actually do work in your life. Uh, that's different than any other story. Other stories, I think, oh, that was great, and then I leave the movie theater. This one will actually work in your life. So I'm going to ask you to do three specific things as we go through uh, the whole story. Uh, the first one, totally preaching to the choir. I know it's holiday weekend and all that, but the first one is be here. <laughs> the first one is uh, just to whatever degree is possible, try to stay in touch. Walk step by step together uh, as a community through the whole story. Um, Here's what happens. If we don't increase our knowledge of God's word, then what's left for us to work with is our opinions. Does that make sense? Uh, if, we, if we're not actually uh, learning about who God is from God, we're building it on the basis of our opinions and other people's opinions. Now, um, I know that all of your opinions are very good. Trust me. I, mean, I know that all of your opinions are wonderful and valid, uh, but in this case, God actually told us how to grow in our faith. In Romans 10.7, many of you know it, it says, faith comes from hearing, hearing from God, and hearing comes from the Word of God. He's given us really specific instructions. So the first one is, be here. The second one is, grab a copy of the story. Uh, each week, if you're an avid reader, it'll probably take you somewhere around 10 minutes to read it if you loathe reading, uh, which a lot of people do, because you've got to sit still to read and you've got to stay focused. I understand that's not the most enjoyable thing for me uh, either. It might take a little bit longer. Uh, there are multiple editions. There's three different children's editions of the story that are uh, kind of age appropriate. There's a student one for youth. Uh, but I want to encourage you, make a commitment to dive in. And thirdly, after be here and grab a copy, parents, listen, this is one of the things I've had to really get a handle on as a parent is that if I don't help my kids know Jesus, nobody else is going to come along and do it for me. Make sense? Um, and so I want to encourage you Lead your family through the story. Jump on Amazon, grab an age-appropriate copy uh, of the story for them. So those are the three things uh, that we're going to do. All right, we took way too much time to set that all up. Oh, good, I'm still on schedule. Uh, we won't do that every week, um, but we're going to start the story. And it starts with something that is totally non-controversial, and everyone agrees on creation. Uh, that was a joke. Not everyone agrees on creation. Uh, in fact, there's all kinds of debate, some of it very heated about it, but that's where the story has to start. So just so we're all together on this, uh, I just want to say we're probably not going to dive into theories. Now, if you're scientifically inclined, you're probably super bummed about that. Uh, if you're a debater, you're probably bummed because you'd like to argue uh, about it. But, but what happens when you just like, dive into those weeds is it just creates confusion for people. Um, and so we, and it happens we end up being like the mom who, you know, the little girl said, uh, Mom, where did we come from? And the mom's like, oh, I always knew we'd have to have this conversation. She got her nerve up and she said, well, you know, Mommy and Daddy fell in love and then we got married and then, you know, one thing led to another and it was all super uncomfortable. And at the end, the little girl was like, I thought God just made everyone. 
And the mom was like, oh, okay, we could have waited for that. Um, it just creates confusion, right? So we're just, we're, we don't want to go there. Uh, I have studied the matter at significant length. Uh, turns out they make you do that when you're a theology major. Uh, I personally find it really fascinating. Uh, so I do want to tell you where I'm at with it. Uh, I, I don't personally, I should say, um, I do believe that God made everything according to its kind. Uh, I don't believe that me and my dog Angus came from the same ancestor. Um, and uh, I don't believe, because of that, that this scenario will ever happen. Dogs and cats will not eventually decide to get along. Uh, I think that they will always be dogs and they will always be cats. Uh, I don't believe in the concept of uh, common or ancestry and um, you know, the full process of natural selection. And uh, I, I'm telling you that for a reason. Uh, the reason I want to tell you where I'm at is so that I can tell you, if you disagree with me, I'm okay. You're okay. It's okay. Uh, if we don't agree on that, it's okay. Because we really only have to agree on one thing for the story to be significant. In order for the story to be significant, we really only have to agree on this one thing that, as it pertains to creation, and that is the first sentence of the Bible. So whether you're holding a Bible or a copy of the story or the device, it's Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you think he did that in seven literal 24-hour days, or if you think each of those days was a thousand years, or you believe in theistic evolution, or maybe you're into the gap theory, which says there was a huge gap after each of the days, I'm okay wherever you're at on that. As long as we can agree on this one thing, we're good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I've thought a lot about this particular sentence, and many of you have heard me say this before, uh, but I like to consider the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Uh, this is the platform from which we jump off into our faith. If those four words are true, then there's no logical problem with anything that comes after it. Now, it doesn't prove that everything that comes after it is true, but think about it this way. Uh, the parting of the Red Sea is not a logical possibility to me. Like, that doesn't happen. Like, oceans and big lakes, they don't just go like that. That doesn't happen. But if in the beginning there's a God who is sovereign over everything, if that's true, then it's a logical possibility. It doesn't prove that it happened, but it means it's possible that it could happen. Throughout the story, we're going to see this cycle where God does, does something good, and then we do what we do, we mess it up. Uh, I don't know if that's been the case in your life. Uh, I think it probably has. But the first thing that happens is God creates everything, and everything is good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this word created uh, in the Hebrew language, which of course the Old Testament is translated from Hebrew into English, it actually, it means something a little bit different. Because when we use the word created, uh, what we mean is uh, a rearranging of things that already exist. Uh, like someone built my house, someone created my house, but they didn't really create it, right? They just rearranged things that already existed into the form of a house. But God, this Hebrew word created, it actually means something out of nothing rather than a rearranging of things that already exist. Uh, there, we're kind of like uh, the scientist who, uh, you know, science is, of course, in the business of figuring out the universe. And so there was a scientist who said to God, hey, uh, thanks for coming, but we've kind of figured it all out now. We've advanced to the point we don't need you anymore, so we're good. And God was like, okay, well... Uh, maybe we should just have a contest to see if that's true. How about like a good old-fashioned human-making contest? 
And uh, just to spice it up, let's make humans out of dirt. And uh, the scientist is like, yeah, that's fine. Like, you know, chemistry, we can, we can figure that out. It might take a while. So, uh, so the scientist bent over to pick up some, some dirt and God, like, God stopped him. He was like, hey, get your own dirt. Okay, we're like that. We rearrange things. God creates something from nothing. God created something from nothing and it was all good. Genesis 1.1. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 26, a little farther down. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. God creates what Ephesians 2.10 calls his masterpiece. After the creative order of the heavens and the earth and nature, he makes mankind in his own image. Let us make mankind in our image. Now, there's a lot buried in those few words. Uh, this is about as deep as the theological waters are going to get. Uh, I just want to make one quick point about it, uh, that God didn't make you because he was lonely or needed your company. Uh, you are spectacular and I love your company. God probably enjoys your company, but that's not the reason that he made people. Um, if you kind of have kind of always had that in your head, that might actually be discouraging to you, but let me tell you why that's really, really good news. Because the Trinitarian God of the universe, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's the really deep water that we're not going to like dive into at this point. Uh, he already exists in community. He already has relationship within himself. He doesn't actually need you and me for fulfillment. And the good news about that is that if he did need me to be fulfilled, he wouldn't be God. I would actually be God. Does that make sense? Uh, I would actually be more important than him if he needed me. Uh, I like him being God and me being, he, me being me. As humans, we're made in his image. A better way to think of that, you know, we think image, we think picture, like visual, uh, is some translations use the word likeness. Uh, we're made in God's likeness. God made us in his likeness, likeness get this, to reveal his glory. Uh, a good way to think of this is uh, maybe you went on a summer vacation. Uh, Toph and Kara went on a summer vacation recently, and uh, I saw many, many pictures of their beautiful daughter, Emery, playing on the beach. Uh, and, uh, and of course, you know, Toph and Kara are obviously attractive as well, so don't want to leave you guys out. Uh, now, now, think about why, uh, when a family goes on vacation, why would I take a picture of my family and then share it with people? Well, what's, like, what's the point? What does that do? The point is to share the experience, right? To reveal the experience that you were having to the people that you care about, to share in what was going on. God made you and I in a similar way to reveal his glory in the same way that uh, a painting reveals the ability of an artist. That's the reason that God made us, is to be a revelation of his glory. We're made in the imago Dei, the image of God. And when you understand the image of God, why you're made to be a revelation of God's glory, that's your answer to the question, why are we here? Why do I exist? What's the point of life? To be a revelation of God's glory. That's why he, that's why he made us. This is basically the logical argument against a non-theistic view of uh, evolution and natural selection, the idea that we're just a product of the cosmos. Uh, because if, you, um, if in life all there is is natural selection, we're just a product of a cosmic accident, then there's literally no meaning to life. Uh, there's no explanation for why we would try to cure disease or why we would have compassion for people who are suffering. Um, 
If, if there's no God in the creative process, then those two things don't, don't go along. They don't play nicely together. But if, however, I'm made in the image of God, then there's a really good reason why I would feel compassion for this person who's suffering because they're made in the image of God too. Of course I feel compassion to them. They're an expression of God's glory just like I am. And this is where we find our true value. So if you're wondering, why do I matter? Why am I significant? Maybe you're feeling like lonely. Maybe you're feeling like you don't, you're not doing anything important that matters to other people. I want to challenge that in the strongest terms possible and say, you bear the image of God. To say that you don't matter is absurd. You bear the image of God. Uh, maybe look in the mirror and think about that uh, for a little while. You matter because you bear the image of God. Page 2, Genesis, Genesis 1, 16, God creates Adam, uh, but for whatever reason, he hasn't made Eve yet. Uh, I don't think that was like a political inclination. Uh, he makes Adam. He's the prototype. He's the perfect human. I'm thinking like 5'9", early 40s, light brown hair. That's just the picture I get, but you know, you do you. Uh, he makes Adam, and uh, he's there all by himself. And uh, I had a friend who was a youth pastor who was telling me one time he asked his youth church, he said, hey, what do you guys think Adam looked like? And somebody shouted out, like Chuck Norris, of course. And then he was said, okay, well, what about Eve? What do you guys think Eve looked like? And somebody shouted out, like Chuck Norris without a beard. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you love Chuck Norris, that's pretty hilarious. Uh, I'll read what God actually says about Adam and Eve. You can decide what they, uh, what they look like. Genesis 2.20 it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took, out, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Uh, the last part is really significant. Uh, I don't think it's significant that they were unashamed about being naked. I think it's significant that there was no mechanism in the world for them to feel shame about anything at this point. They wouldn't even have known what shame was uh, in any way. People debate sometimes about, you know, why God made Adam first and then Eve. I think there's generally two camps. Uh, in general, a lot of women might say, well, God made Adam first and then he thought to himself, eh, I can do better than that. So he made Eve. Uh, men might lean more into the camp that says, well, you know, God waited till after all of the creation was done to make Eve because if he made her sooner, she would have spent the whole time telling him how to do it right. Oh, I'm not proud of that. In any case, in any case, Adam wakes up for his sleep. He sees Eve. He's probably really pumped. And God looks at the whole situation and he declares it all to be very good. The world is at peace. Everything is good. Genesis 2.16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Everything's very good up until this point. Dun, dun. But the plot is about to thicken, right? Uh, the dilemma is at hand. You can feel it. People ask, what's the point of the tree? Like, why... Why the tree? Why did God even have to make the tree? I mean, clearly the situation is better without the tree. What's, what's the deal with that? And, and it's really pretty simple. God has always given mankind, human beings, the choice to love him or not to love him. 
Uh, now, I know if you're in what's known as the election camp, that's, that's kind of difficult to reconcile, but the reality is you've made choices today. We make choices all the time. God gives every one of us the option to return his affection and to worship him and acknowledge him as God or to go our own way and try to be our own God. Uh, and by the way, we make the wrong choice all the time. Like, it seems so obvious when I say it like that, right? Like, God's God or I'm God. That seems really obvious, but how often do I go the other direction? Uh, our reality, I think, is you would have eaten the fruit too. At some point, you would have eaten the fruit too. Now, there's all kinds of things that God tells me not to do, but I do anyway, and vice versa the other way around. Add to that the fact that there was an antagonist. There was a serpent. Satan enters the picture, the bad guy who's determined to deceive Adam and Eve. And this is why we love the story, because it's our story that's happening right now. The Bible tells us that Lucifer was an archangel of God, and he decided that he wanted to be in God's place. And so uh, he rebelled and tried to overthrow God and take charge, and finally God banished him from heaven altogether. And now he is forever the enemy of God. So it makes sense why there's evil in the world. This is the origin of it, because the antagonist wants retribution. And there's a familiar verse in John chapter 10 that tells us what he's up to. Only three things, to kill, to steal, and destroy. Everything that's good in your life, he wants to crush. Uh, if you're wondering why life is just hard sometimes, things that seem like they should be easy are just difficult, because he wants to kill, to steal, and destroy. There's an awesome six-minute video on our website. If you haven't seen it, uh, you should go and check it out. It's on the media page. Just scroll down to the bottom. Uh, it's a spoken word piece about this, uh, but it's really, really great. So check that out at some point. Um, a guy named David Stone, he, uh, he says that Satan always does three things in our lives, and we see him right here at work. Uh, so in Genesis 3, verse 1, I just want to go right through these things, and you'll see him at work. The first one is he questions God's actual words. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We see this all the time, right? We try to redefine what has already been defined. We, we do this. The second thing he does after he questions God's words is he denies God's words. Genesis 3.4, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. He didn't mean you won't die. Did he say you're going to die? No, you won't die. You're not going to die. It'll be fine. Question, deny, finally reverse. Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and, he will be, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're not going to die. Instead, your eyes will be opened. God said you're going to die, but you're actually going to live if you do it. Question, deny, and reverse. It's a slippery slope and happens all the time. Genesis 3, 6 tells us that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Just a chapter ago, they were naked and unashamed and now they're hiding from God. 
A chapter ago, everything was very good, and now everything is completely off the rails. That's what sin does. It's the antithesis of good. We think sin is not that big a deal, but it's actually the biggest and most fundamental problem in all of human existence. Every problem that we have in the world flows from it. And the difficulty is it doesn't just knock on your door and say, hey, I'm sin, I'm here to screw up your life. Because uh, if, if it did that, you'd shut the door, right? You'd, you'd run away. If you were, knew you were being deceived, you wouldn't let it happen. If you knew you were being stolen from, you wouldn't let that happen. But this is the answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? This, this is the answer to that question, and it affects us all. Book of Romans says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, I know you have. You know I have. That's the dilemma. And from here, the story becomes, becomes unraveled. Uh, everything here after this gets messy. Chapter 4, we see the first murder. Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel, the older brother Cain, kills his brother Abel because of jealousy. Man, the story went from very good to really jacked out pretty fast. We're in chapter 4 out of, you know, many, uh, a pretty large book. This is the cycle of humanity. By the time we get to chapter 7, the world is a mess. Mankind is consumed with evil, selfishness, greed, decadence of every kind, you name it. That's about 1,100 years uh, up until from Adam to Noah in chapter 6. Uh, we know that from the genealogy found in G Genesis 5. But here's what we see when we get to Noah in Genesis 6, 5. It tells us that what the world was like at the time of Noah. It says that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now, I know, we think, oh my gosh, the world's going to hell in the handbasket. It's getting worse and worse every day. Uh, there's a lot of messed up stuff in the world, but it's not only evil all the time. Like, there's good stuff today too, right? There's good things happening in the world. But it says in the days of Noah, only evil all the time. That's, that's pretty bad news. Now, personally, I think that's evidence of a really important biblical truth, and that is uh, that we've actually already hit bottom, and God is in the process of reconciling all things back to very good. We're actually going slowly the other direction, back toward all good. Clearly, we're not there yet, uh, but we're actually moving that direction. But at this point in history, everything's gone from all good to only one good. Genesis 6.6 6 says, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible. This is where we'll kind of close our, our time through the story for this week. It's one of the most important passages in the Bible because it tells us about God and it tells us how he views you. Because in spite of all that's gone wrong, his very good creation has gone to only evil all the time. But God is looking for the one who will make a difference. And sometimes we feel small, we feel insignificant, but God is looking for the one. There's still hope in this story because God sees one person. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to ask the band if they'll come back up. Uh, I just want to summarize. There's, there's two, two stories that are happening right here uh, in, in the narrative. One is kind of the high-level story. Uh, the battle between good and evil is on. We've gone from good to bad. We're a mess. And this cycle is repeated as we see throughout the Bible over and over and over again. And in spite of all that's gone wrong, at the highest level, God is working to restore it. Back in chapter 3, after Satan deceived Adam and Eve, God 
cursed the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is where we find the very first prophecy about Jesus. This is what it says. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is a very kind of just a really cryptic prophecy about Jesus. If you don't know the big story, it makes absolutely no sense. But this is the first promise we see regarding Christ coming to fight and win our battle against sin. If you remember Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, there's this weird scene where it's just like this, it's just like this cutaway from the whole movie where Jesus stomps on the head of the snake. That's a reference to this passage right here. From the highest perspective, this is what's happening. We've gone from good to bad, but now God has begun the process of restoration. That's what's happening at the high level. But at the low level, which is us right here today, your life in mind, we're going to get up in just a minute and walk out of here, uh, go about our regular business. I want to point out something that's happening at ground level in your life. After God curses Satan, Adam and Eve have to leave the garden. They no longer live in perfection. Life is difficult. There are struggles because sin has entered the world and with sin came death. Remember, God told them that when you sin, when you, when you rebel against me, you eat the fruit, you will surely die. Uh, later on, he says that the wage of sin is death. They now have to leave and that they've gone from unashamed to filled with shame. Sin, sin we make it no big deal. Uh, but this is how significant it is. Every problem that exists is the result of rebellion against God for us. Uh, they've now covered themselves with fig leaves. And those are both, uh, it's both a, a literal covering, real fig leaves, uh, but it's also emblematic or representative of an internal problem. They have outward, external shame, but they also have internal shame. And every one of us knows what that feels like. I did that thing. I said that thing. I didn't do what I said I would do. Every one of us knows what shame feels like on the inside. And God comes to them and he sees them in their shame. And in Genesis 3:21, this is what it says he did. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Death is the stated penalty for sin. How do you get garments of skin? An animal has to die for that to happen. So God deals with their internal shame by satisfying the penalty for sin, which he said is death, substitutionarily through the death of this animal. But then he demonstrates his care and his mercy for them by covering up their outward shame as well. See, at our level right here, right now, this is what we know God to be. He's merciful. Yeah, he knows. He knows where you've been. He knows the messes that you've made, but he's merciful. And he's compassionate towards you. When you look in the mirror and you feel shame, guess what? Jesus has already satisfied the penalty for that. God's already covered that. He feels compassion for you. He's making a way for you. When you think, I've made such a mess, there's no way out of this situation. God is making a way for you, just like he did for Adam and Eve. This is what the story teaches us about God. Yes, it's gone wrong, but he's redeeming. He's reconstructing. He's exchanging the old for new. So we're going to sing one song before we go. I'm going to ask you if you'd stand with me. Whoever has had their sin covered by the death and bloodshed of Jesus, you don't have to worry about shame anymore because God through Christ is returning all things back to very good for you. This is the process he's in. 
This is God's amazing grace restoring all things. about God's amazing grace. If you're wondering what the big idea that we're going to get to at the culmination of it, that's what it is. Uh, It's that shame's not a thing for you anymore. Sin's not a thing for you anymore. The downward spiral is not a thing for you anymore because the story ends well for you. Jesus paid the bill. Uh, So I want to encourage you to renew your faith in it. Dive into that story. See what it's all about. See what God's done for you. Lord, thank you for your mercy that chases us no matter how far we go, no matter how far we run for you, from you, your, your love goes farther. You have paid the bill in every way needed and necessary. And so, uh, God, I pray you'd help us today when we go out the doors to act like people who belong to the King. Our Father owns everything. It's all His. He's got His hand on the wheel. And nothing's going to happen that is outside of His purview. So I pray you just teach us to put our trust and our hope in you and walk in the joy that you've already sealed for us in Jesus' name.